Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, lockdowns are ending. Masks will not be required. And it's happening pretty much across the nation. There's vaccines, there's treatments for this disease that are much more easily available. But we can sort of return to normal. Finally, I know it's a very happy day for me. I don't know about you. I've been praying that by the time we get to move into the new sanctuary, we'll be all in one congregation. And I think it's going to happen, and I'm so glad for that. We see so many good things coming together then to make this happen. But my question is, do you see the hand of God? Does anybody notice the hand of God? As we look at this psalm, Psalm 126, we see God's hand in happy celebrations. So I'd like to look at it in sort of three parts. Uh, gladness, amazingly what God made us to feel. And then witnessing how he uses us. And then hope, what he promises to do in the future. So gladness, it begins this psalm with just pure exuberant joy. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Captive ones, you, you'll notice in your English translations, it varies a little bit because the word has a broader meaning. It could be those who are experiencing misfortunes or troubles of many kind, heartbreak, hard events. could be in your home, in your family, could be in our nation where there's well, defeat and captivity and disease and death. But it's ended. Isn't it wonderful when those kinds of hard times finally come to an end? Just breathe a sigh of relief. You celebrate. So compare and contrast this. This is Psalm 137, which is the psalmist talking about the times when they were in captivity. Verse 1 says, By the waters of Babylon, where they were in captivity, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But now they're home. That's what this psalm is about. Psalm 126, they've come home and they're saying, Pinch me. I don't know if this is a dream. We were like those who dream. And, and they're laughing out loud and they're shouting. They're dancing. Weeping has turned to shouts of joy. It's like that passage from Isaiah I read in the beginning, Isaiah 51, you know, verse 11. The ransom of the Lord, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and gladness and joy shall fill them, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
That's what they felt. Finally, we're home, we're back. And we know the feeling. Here's the thing. This is human nature. It's not something for Christians, for God's people. This is something God has put in us. I remember some years ago, our little girl, one of our daughters was lost in this huge, enormous mall. And oh, you can imagine how frantic we were running to and fro, kicking ourselves. Why didn't we watch her more carefully? Oh, if only I'd held her uh, tighter. And we just were losing hope. What happens if someone kidnaps her because we had heard that had happened recently from a mall? And then we saw her standing in a corner, forlorn, weeping. And oh, that sigh of relief and joy, tears of happiness. You know that feeling. It's a human feeling. We all have that kind of gladness. And so we see it in Scripture, but what we're seeing is a very human feeling. For example, Sarah, Genesis chapter 21, says she waited, well, like nine decades for her son to be born. When Isaac came, here's what she said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. It's, it's laughter of happiness. We know that. The Israelites were in captivity to Egypt, slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And when God brought them out and they crossed the Red Sea and they saw their captors, these armies of Egypt which were chasing them to take them back, drowned in the Red Sea. Oh, they just burst into song. Exodus 15 is a is the song that they composed and wrote. And it says they didn't just sort of sit in pews and sing. It says they sang and shouted and danced for joy. It's human nature. You don't hold it back when finally there's release. And so for Israel now, in terms of captivity, if we're thinking of the captivity of Babylon, that was seven decades. It's a long time. Seven decades waiting for that promise of God. God had promised in the book of Jeremiah that they would be released at that time. But now seven decades have passed and now finally they're home and there's this exuberance. Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. It's human nature. It feels great when trouble finally ends. We love it. There's that old story about an Englishman. Maybe you've heard it. He bought shoes purposely that were too small for, uh, for him. And then he marched around all day and someone asked, why are you doing that? He says, oh, because it feels so good when I take my shoes off at the evening. There's this relief, this exuberance. Now, of course, for us under COVID, we didn't do it on purpose, did we? We didn't say, oh, it's going to feel so good when it's over. Let's go through this. No, it wasn't quite like that. For us, it's been about, I think, 14 months, if I'm counting right, since we met together here as a congregation. It's a long time. Of course, we've been live streaming through a lot of that time, but you know, there was restrictions and masking and everything else. We endured, besides that, economic troubles and financial woes for many people. Many people did get sick. We had no occasion to meet people that we usually spend time with. It's produced tremendous stress in families, homes, and individual lives. Just that kind of isolation that people experience. We couldn't see, you know, uh, our relatives. We couldn't see nieces, nephews, grandchildren. It was a hard time, and now it's over. So, so there's a natural exuberance that we feel. We identify with what these people were writing about in Psalm 126. But where is the hand of God? It is a natural exuberance, so where is the hand of God? Here's one place 
that the very capacity for gladness is a gift of God. Not just the circumstances, but God has made us to celebrate with gladness. I saw this first in Acts chapter 14. So Paul has gone to this little backwater village called Lystra. And there he's introducing them to the God of creation because they worship all kinds of idols. And he lists there what you might call the essentials for life that God has provided graciously, freely to everyone. It's, you know, general grace for the human race. Everyone gets this. So what do you suppose God thinks are essentials for life? Well, verse 17 in Acts 14, it lists rain. Of course, we need water. You know, the water molecule is unique in the universe in its ability, in its chemical properties, its ability to support life. Yeah, we need rain. It goes on to mention food, and then it says seasons in food. In other words, the capacity to grow food, to have livestock, so that we can have what we need for nutrition. And then, God's Word adds one more thing. Very peculiar. It says, what, what is God doing through all this? It says, God was satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That's something. God knew that, yeah, we need food, water, shelter. When there's a disaster, those are the things we ship over. You can put those things in a container, you know, and fly them over to some place that's devastated. But God saw that in that list of essential ingredients is gladness. We need gladness. Water, food, shelter are just not enough to satisfy our souls. God made us for gladness. Oh, what a wonderful God. What kind of a God would have done that, do you suppose? What kind of a God would have said, you know what they need? They need gladness. I imagine God, you know, making provision for mankind. Oh, they need a beautiful planet, just perfect in every respect to support life. They, they need rain and they need clear streams and and lakes so that they can have plenty of water. They need rolling hills on which they can grow their fields and feed their livestock. Oh, and of course, they need to be glad. I have to create in them the capacity for gladness. That's what God did. They need joy. They need to be happy. They need to have times when they shout for joy, when they dance and sing for joy. God put that into human nature. All of us have that. You see God's hand in our celebrations? We should. As God's people, we should. So God did that. Why? Well, don't you suppose it's because God himself is a happy God? He's a glad God. He values joy. You know, the famous verse in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I think the Lord Jesus said the same thing. He wants us to be glad, to be filled with joy. And how? How do we get gladness? By going our own way? No, God, God warns us not to do that because it will degrade our joy. We harm ourselves. And so, for example, in John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus gives instructions to all of us, his disciples. He says, follow my word. I've given you these things so that you'll be clean, you'll be pruned, you'll be fruitful. And then he says this in verse 11. Follow my word, not out of fear, not out of 
dread and duty. He says in verse 11, John 15, these things I have spoken to you, these instructions, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Amazing. Our triune God is a God of joy and who made us for gladness. So where do we see the hand of God? Every place where you see people celebrating, you and I as God's people see something that God has made in us, something that reflects who he is, echoed in some way in the lives of our neighbors. God made us to celebrate and be glad. So the psalm then unfolds, uh, unfolds with news, news that we have to share, news to which we have to be witnesses because not everybody sees the hand of God. So it says in, in verse 2, second part, Then they said, Among the nations the Lord has done great things for them. Why would they say this among the nations? Well, because somebody told them about the Lord, about Yahweh, which is referred to here. When trouble is over, our first impulse is to praise, well, our own ingenuity and our own strength and to think of all the strategies that we use to finally come to victory and, of course, completely miss the hand of God. We pat ourselves on the back. Aren't we glad that our country has such a strong economy that even the devastation of uh, the shutdowns are not going to destroy it? Aren't we glad for science and medicine and the brilliance of those who are coming up with medicines and vaccines and for all the infrastructure that allows us to get the medicines to us? Yeah, we're glad for all of that. Look at what we did. But do we see the hand of God? It sounds a lot like, it's easy for us to sound like what Jesus said was happening in Capernaum. In Matthew 11, he says, do you lift yourself high? You're going to be brought down low. Or what the prophet Isaiah said against the kingdom of Tyre. Let me just read in part this passage from Isaiah chapter 14. This is to the king of Tyre. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. You think you are as wise as a God. You think no secret hidden from you. That by your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. Because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. And what do you suppose follows right after that? The judgment of God. So it's easy to just pat ourselves on the back. But how? How will people see that there's a great God behind everything who deserves honor and thanksgiving among the nations unless we tell them? Unless we point to this great God and say all that he has done. So friends, as we are emerging from this era of COVID, we have this obligation to tell our neighbors that there's a God that we trust and there's a God that we thank. I thank God for this day. Oh yeah, I'm willing to thank people, I'm willing to thank all the other things, but I know the hand behind everything. Thank God for this day. Now if you do that, they may ask questions. Here's two questions they might ask. For example, they might ask, so you thank God, but why? Why such a long wait? Why hundreds of thousands of dead people? Why would your God do this? You might want to think about how you'd answer that question. I might approach it something like this. I, I might say, you know, that's a fair question. I think it's a good question, but Christians approach that question 
in a different way than you do. As a Christian, I approach it as one who knows the God who rules over all these matters. I don't know the answer to your question, but there's two things I know about God. First, I know that he's unbelievably good and kind. And I know this because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I dishonored him. I slapped God on the face by the way I lived my life, independent of what he wanted me to do. Didn't care one whit for him. I sinned. And you know what God did? In his kindness, he bore the shame and the pain of what I had done. That's the cross of my Jesus. And then he offered me peace. He called me his son. So I know he's unbelievably good and kind. And and the second thing that I know about my God is that he is brilliant, that he's wise. He's a genius. And among other ways that I know this is creation, just look around you from the stars in heaven to the way the earth is put together to the way our bodies are put together. He's brilliant. He's wise. And every nook and cranny of nature speaks about his wisdom. So I don't understand why. I can't answer your question, but I'll tell you, I trust him. I know he's good. I know he's kind. I know he's brilliant. So I trust him, even if I don't know the answer, even if I'm going through a hard time, even if I'm feeling dread in my bones, I trust what God is doing. That's why I thank him. I've come to know my God in the face of my Lord Jesus Christ, and I thank him and I praise him for getting us through this COVID period. So someone else may ask, secondly, well, why are you thanking God? I mean, aren't you thanking the scientists and the doctors and the medicine and the leaders and the policy and everything else that got us through this. And I think it's easy to to do that. And I'm all in favor of thanking those people, by the way. But it's easy to boast in our science and our technology and the good decisions made by leaders when things are looking pretty good. Things have turned out. But what's behind all that? I think we have to tell our friends, you know what, I see something behind science. I see something behind medicine and doctors and hospitals, I see the hand of God. May I give you an example of that? And you can read that in the Bible later, but in Daniel chapter 2, it's a story of a great kingdom, more powerful, probably relative to other nations, far more wealthy than the United States of America. It's the kingdom of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the ruler, and he had a dream that troubled him one day, and he called all his wise men in, and he says, I want you to tell me what this dream means. And the wise men said, oh, okay, we'll do that. Tell us what your dream is, and we'll interpret it for you. And he says, you scoundrels, no. You're just going to tell me whatever comes into your head. No, you have to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation, or you die. Bad news. And they argued with him. They said, who can do this? No one's able to. He says, do this, or you die. And his henchmen, his his generals are out taking their sword out to carry out the execution of all the wise men. And they finally came to Daniel and Daniel said, hold it, hold it. And he said, I'm going to go pray along with his brothers from Israel. And they prayed and God revealed to Daniel what the dream was and what the dream meant. And here's what Daniel prayed, Daniel 2.21. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to men of understanding. 
There's a source. There's a source for all this insight. There's a source for knowledge. Ultimately, it comes from God, he recognized. So he went to the king, and you can read the whole story. He told him the, the dream and the interpretation of it. And the king lived out what our psalm says, where it says, the nations will know the great things you've done. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, said. Verse 47, Daniel 2, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. God gives knowledge. God gives wisdom. God makes science possible. He did it by creating an orderly universe. This is one of the greatest mysteries. Why does science work at all? Why, why is there law everywhere that we can study and know to be true over and over? I asked an atheist uh, chemist this once, and he just said, I have no idea. He said, it's just something that seems to work. I take it as a hypothesis. Wow, that's a strange reaction to this deep reality that allows every scientist to even continue to do his or her work. Not only that, but he's given us minds that are in some way in concert with the, with the creation so that we can understand it. You know, the bats, from where this coronavirus might have come, never came up with a vaccine for it, right? Because it's a capacity God has given to us, those created in his image. So our minds are made to figure things out. You're doing it all the time, aren't you? You're figuring out how, what the best way to do something is. You're solving in fact, you do it so often, human race does it so often, that sometimes we, think it, we don't think about why we're even able to do it. It's like a child lying in a little crib, and she says, you know what, when I'm hungry, a bottle appears. When I'm sleepy, somehow I'm in a soft bed and a warm blanket is over me. It just happens. It's the law of nature. When I need a diaper changed, I let out a little cry and the diaper's changed. That's just the way nature works. I just don't believe in motherhood. I don't think there are any such things as mothers. It's just nature. When something happens irregularly, we do it all the time, we forget to ask, where does this come from? And this is a gift of God. God put the laws of nature in place. God gave us minds to understand them systematically, whether it's biology or chemistry or medicine. And God gave us the ability, insight, knowledge, wisdom, as Daniel said that we can know. So behind this wonderful science, and it was wonderful, behind all this wonderful medical work is the hand of our great God. That's what verse 3 is talking about. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. That's what we have to tell the nations. So gladness is a gift of God. Do you see that? It's the hand of God. God calling us to tell others about him. Is the hand of God working through us, directing people's attention to who's behind everything that's happened? And then lastly, maybe I could say that, well, troubling times are going to come again. Maybe not exactly like this, maybe not as widespread, we don't know. But every one of our lives is going to face challenges and troubles. And so, lastly, there's hope. We have to hope in the promises of God for the future. That's these last verses. Restore our captivity, O Lord. Or restore our misfortune. Restore us or redeem us from our misfortunes, O Lord. 
as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Beautiful imagery here. What are they talking about? I, I think they're talking about prosperity and life and health and happiness in the home and in individual lives. But as God's people, don't we want even more than that? So think of how you might apply this, how you might pray for revival in our souls, in our churches, in our land, for moral and spiritual renewal as a result of what has happened these past months. So you notice these images. First, it's like streams in the Negev. Negev or the south, the southern part. It's the desert. It's a desert stream that's dry all the time. And you think nothing will ever happen. But then there's a rain uh, shower and all of a sudden there's a flood. Every stream is filled. And all kinds of flowers all of a sudden bloom all over the desert. Where do they come from? I don't know. It happens suddenly. And all of a sudden the land was filled with beauty. Out of nowhere. Life sometimes comes suddenly like that. God works like that. Like in 1740s in Northampton. Pastor Jonathan Edwards was in a church that is no longer there. Been replaced by another building, but he was preaching and it began, as he says, with the young people. God blessed the young people. It began with a tragedy. One of the young people got sick and died and it awakened the young people to the, to the seriousness of life. They, they saw that this is serious business to deal with what life is about and what comes afterwards. And there was a Revival, a renewal, a spiritual renewal in their lives. And then it, like a spark on dry wood, spread to the church and to the valley and to the whole region and the nation. People call it the Great Awakening. Or it's like 100 years later in the 1850s, this man named Jeremiah Lamphere. He had a heart to do something in Manhattan among the business people. And so he advertised on a Wednesday afternoon, every lunch, I'm going to be here, come join me for prayer. And the first Wednesday, one guy showed up. The next Wednesday, there was like two or three. And it grew and it grew. And read the story. After just a week or two, every building in Manhattan was filled with businessmen praying for God's blessings on the land. Sometimes it's like a stream that just all of a sudden floods over with God's blessings. Or it's like what happened in the 1970s in the U.S., while all kinds of people were seeking some sort of satisfaction and happiness and gladness, there was this huge group of young people that were hungry to know God and to know Christ. And they would crowd into churches just like this, wearing, you know, barefoot, ripped jeans, long hair, didn't bathe, it didn't matter. And they were listening to some old guy wearing a leisure suit talk about the Bible. And the pastor didn't understand. I don't know what it is. But I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing because God's at work. It's like a stream that just floods all of a sudden. Don't you want to pray for that? Don't you want to pray for streams in the desert? Sometimes, though, in the second image is like the work of a farmer, isn't it? It's hard work, slow, hard seasons, bone-breaking work. Sometimes hope begins to wane, but uh, here's a promise. You sow in tears, whether it's in marriage or in home, in your, for your loved ones, for your jobs, for your own lives, 
You pour out your tears, you pour out your prayers, but they're like seed. That's what this is saying. They're like seed that you're sowing. And the promise is that you shall come with shouts of joy, bringing in sheaves. A great harvest will come. Hope, trust, trust in that promise of God. Keep working, keep laboring for that. So let's hope in that promise. You know, there's more than the end of COVID. That's what I'm saying. There's more to rejoice in. There's more to hope for. There's more that God has ahead. Greater celebrations than this, far greater. Hope for those, work for those, pray for those. Let's hope in God for a spiritual renewal in our homes and in our families. May God, oh, may God grant that in our valley and in our nation. So let's celebrate. That's what I say. God made us to celebrate. Isn't that a wonderful God? Isn't he praiseworthy that he's given us the very capacity to celebrate and be glad? And let's tell others that we thank God for this blessing because his hand is behind all this. Let's let them know that we love him and trust him in hard times and in joyful times because we know him. We know who he is. And then lastly, since we know there will be more trials in life, let's pray and hope in God's promises to turn every trial, every tear into gladness in our homes and in our nation. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We are glad for it. We do look forward to more celebrations. Lord, we pray that there'd be nothing but celebrations in life. And uh, we know one day that'll be. It'll be like an unending banquet in your presence. But we thank you for this day of celebration. And we pray, Lord, that the hearts of your people will see, that our eyes will be open to see your hand behind all that's happened and indeed, Lord, all that will happen. And we do praise you and we thank you for it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Psalm 118 says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I, I'm happy today. I think all of us are happy this week for what God is doing and what he promises to do. We have, you know, when we look back, there's 10,000 reasons to thank God. And we look ahead, there's 10,000 reasons to hope in him and trust him. I know that there's some who are facing challenges now, and I know that all of us will face challenges in the days ahead, but let's keep hoping in his promises that there is going to be a harvest of joy. So that's my blessing and benediction. Whatever you're facing now, whatever you may face in the future, may Christ give you hope in his promises that he will restore you again and again and again. Amen.